Come into the Lord's presence with singing. Enter God's courts with praise. Let us worship the Lord our God.
and call on the name of the Lord. Loving and all-merciful God, you have given us this good earth. Where we stand is holy. Holy is the ground. Filled with the wonders of your creation and the beauty of your limitless love, we see you and know you in this theater of your glory. We come together today to raise our praises to you in gratitude for this gift of life on which we walk. We pray in the name of our triune God, our life giver, life sustainer, and breath of new life. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both all of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord. And because it is in God's house that we have gathered, our word of welcome is one that is extended with absolutely no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We are grateful to welcome all in the name of Jesus Christ here at First Church. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would kindly sign the friendship pad, which should be just on the inside edge of your pew, if you will sign it and send it down and back again, we will have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of worship. We'd also be delighted at the end of this service if everyone would gather for a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just off the store to my right and down a very short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have prepared light refreshments, but most importantly, you will find the opportunity to engage with one another more deeply in our common life. Speaking of our common life, I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin. The first is to note that the memorial service for Jenny Isaacson will be tomorrow at 11 a.m. in the sanctuary, and on-street parking is available until 2 o'clock tomorrow in deference to that. You'll note as well that we have an upcoming Sojourner Truth Walk, which is on the 29th from 2 to 5, and you can sponsor the First Church team on our website if you like for that. And you're also, of course, welcome to join in that walk. Uh, finally, for the announcements, I'd like to highlight that today we will have a special adult education offering uh, following this service in observance of Earth Day, which of course was yesterday. Our own Doug O'Malley, who serves as the director of Environment New Jersey, will be our presenter in the McCall Room at 12.30, and uh, a light lunch will be provided, so come on up. Hopefully we have enough sandwiches for everyone. If not, we'll just share amongst ourselves. But uh, look forward to seeing everyone in the McCall Room, if you are able to join in the conversation about how we ourselves can contribute to sustainability in our daily living. With all these things noted, we now have a minute for history from Karen Marston. Good morning, everyone. I'm Karen Marston, and I am honored to be a member of the Anniversary Planning Committee for the 325th anniversary that we're planning. So with that, I want you to think, and I'm not going to call anybody like I did the celebration service, because public math seems to be something that people aren't that great at, but what was 25 years ago? If I did my math right, it was 1998. So I don't know if anybody out there remembers where they were in April of 1998. But what we are going to do in order to bring our youngest members, our children, into the anniversary celebration, it, and with you all, our more mature members of the congregation, we are doing a time capsule. 
So we're going to go 25 years into the future, which will be 2048. That's all if I did my math right. <laughs> I'm a lawyer, not a mathematician. <laughs> so when you go to 2048, those of us that are still around will hopefully be here to open the time capsule. Now, somebody at the celebration service said, how are we going to know? And I said, well, Baron will still be here. <laughs> to which he told me he would be retired by then. But he promised that he would leave instructions to the next pasture. So we should be fine remembering that our time capsule needs to be opened in 2048. So what I ask of all of you is if some people will volunteer to pair up with our younger generation here and help answer a few questions about the church today and about the church in the past. I could actually answer some questions when Dr. Somerville, the other Dr. Somerville, preached from our lectern, because um, I have been at the church for a long time. But what we'd like to do is, they're going to be, it's not going to take much time, but we'd like to connect our youngest members with the older members of our congregation to sort of bring a history of our congregation that they will do a quick little paragraph with help of parents, because some of our youngest probably can't write a paragraph, some of our, some can. That will go into the time capsule. If you have anything that you would like to put into the time capsule, you are more than welcome to do so. I will be talking to our youngest members about things that they can put in the time capsule that they think will be very different come 2048. I've also already had some wonderful coins, very old coins that we're going to put into the time capsule. So by the time we see them in 25 years, they'll be even older. So put your thinking caps on. Think of something that maybe we have today that you think is going to be very different in 25 years that you would like to contribute to the time capsule. And if you would like to volunteer, we will have a sign-up sheet that I guess we'll post on the bulletin board. Or you can let me know, you can send me an email, you can let Sue know that you would be willing to volunteer your time and we will coordinate a time for you to meet with one of the younger children and actually have a chance to chat about the history of the church from your perspective. So I hope that you all will look forward to our time capsule and contribute to it. Thank you very much. Sign me up for that, Karen, please. <laughs> so often we are unaware of the ways in which we turn away from the very relationship that is life-sustaining and grace-filled. We take these moments to turn toward, to bring our focus to the ways in which we have fallen short of being in right relationship with our Creator in our common prayer of confession. Eternal God, Though we are made in your image, we fail to live as you made us live. Given the calling to be stewards of what you have made, we have turned aside to easier things. Where we have missed opportunities to serve, we need forgiveness. Where we have not been mindful of your creation, we need forgiveness. Where we have contributed to destruction, we need forgiveness. Where we harbor guilt and unease, we need forgiveness. For what we know but cannot name, we need forgiveness. 
So remake us, we pray. Call us and lead us where you would have us go. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's continue our personal confessions in silence. When we set aside these moments to turn towards our Creator, we find that God is already there, has always been there, has walked this earth in assurance of this good news, and brings us to new life, renewed relationship in limitless grace. So friends, believe the promise of the Gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
now may our hearts and minds be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to listen to the word of God as it is written today in our, our epistle lesson from 1 Peter, chapter 1, reading from verse 17. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, Love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. back, our Adult Christian Education Committee asked if today's service could have a theme of ecological justice to it in order that it might support the programming for uh, Earth Day, which of course was yesterday, as I noted, and I was more than happy to do that, but that does mean we're taking a step off the lectionary today, so our final reading of scripture will come not from the lectionary, but from the beginning of Genesis. We're going to read the entirety of the first chapter, and then a few verses into the second. It makes for a longer reading, but... I think an important uh, one because the very repetitiveness of the lesson itself is, is part of the theology behind it. So I think it's important we read it all. And I'd like to note as well that while I normally try to stick with the exact text that you have in your Bibles in the pew rack, um, this one is the updated edition of the New Revised Standard Version. And there are a couple minor uh, subtle changes in the language that I think uh, serve better translation. So if you're reading along with me, you'll notice a couple minor tweaks here and there to that. So, <clears throat> with those notes, let us encounter the Word of God as it comes to us from Genesis. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was a complete chaos, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome, and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. And God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, second day. 
And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together God called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on the earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser night light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and the wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. God created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were finished in all their multitude. On the sixth day, God created the work that God had, God finished the work that God had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. These 
are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Twenty-five years ago, I might have said that this text has nothing to do with Earth Day, not because I don't think we need insights from the Bible into how we relate to God's creation, but because the history of interpretation did not suggest that that would be an appropriate or correct interpretation of the beginning of Genesis. But the prevailing winds of biblical scholarship are shifting. And now there will be, no doubt, many Earth Day sermons preached from this text. And what one hopes that they will have in common will not be that they will torture this text into confessing what it didn't do. We can get there from here if we take time to seek understanding. So to begin, we must acknowledge, even if it seems a bit pedantic, that if Genesis 1 is science, it's not very good science. But as best we can tell, the author never intended that we should hold up Genesis 1 alongside ecological science 
and see either a problem or a correction. That's not the author's expected main intent, at least not as best we can discern it. This is not a story about the working of the mechanics of creation. But that doesn't mean that it has nothing to say to us today. This is a theologian's story, and it is intended to tell us something about God and how we relate to God. And if we are serious about how we relate to God, then we must certainly also be serious about how we relate to what God loves. The Pentateuch, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, is thought to be the product of four dominant strands of writing with several, perhaps many, sub-writers within each thread, giving us four distinctive perspectives on faith. That is, for instance, why, if you continue reading past the fourth verse of chapter 2 of Genesis, you will immediately fall upon another creation story, and in many ways it's the more familiar one. God crafts a human out of dirt, and then after a, a brief surgical procedure, crafts a mate to go with that first human. But today's text is written from what is called the priestly source. The priestly author was concerned almost to the point of obsession with order and right worship. Analyzing the style and manner of the text allows us to hypothesize when it was likely written, and it's generally agreed upon that the story we read today was written while the Israelites were enslaved in Babylon. How did they get there? They failed to honor their covenant relationships with God. They entered into conflicting alliances, and when their duplicitous dealings were discovered by their supposed allies, the mighty Babylonian army crushed the tiny Israelite army and their best and brightest were dragged away into what we call the Babylonian captivity. In the midst of all this disorder and disharmony and general fear, the priestly author penned these verses about the foundation of the world, about God's creation of the universe, and sought to make answers to some foundational questions facing people of faith. Their questions were not about the state of the environment. To a displaced people, scattered and afraid, disheartened and lonely for their homeland, the questions probably ran more along these lines. Do I still matter to God? Is God still in charge of the world? What can we do about this mess we have made? And perhaps those also are questions of ecological justice. To a displaced people scattered and afraid, the theologians pinned these verses to say something about God and how we relate to God. And what we say about God matters because that is how we give answer to our most important questions. 
So first, the priests address the question of chaos and disorder. And we are not referring to garden variety chaos, pun intended. This is not the junk drawer, nor is it the recalcitrant den closet. We are speaking of the very real fear that everything will fall apart, that creation will devolve back into the chaos from which it came. The Hebrew phrase tohu wabohu doesn't really translate very well into English. It means formless, nothingness, lack of order, chaos. It's bad stuff. When God began creating, it was oblivion, mess. And God, in the days of creation, orders the chaos. Above all this nothingness and chaos, God's spirit was hovering, and God speaks order. I wonder if this speaks to us in quite the same way it spoke to the ancient Israelites. I wonder if our lives are such that this word could possibly carry as much comfort to us as it did to them. I wonder. And then I realized it most surely must. As the world is getting hotter, and storms are getting stronger, and consumption continues to be defined by greed rather than by need, it matters that God is still brooding over creation. One of the subtle translation differences, the reason I used the text we did this morning, was that it is a change of tense. God began creating creation. It's an unfinished work. This story must seem terribly monotonous, almost to the point of tedium. Over six days, God seems to do and redo the same work over and over. One day a light is fixed, and then the next day the sun and the moon are instituted. One day the waters are separated, and then another day dry land is established. It almost seems obsessive-compulsive until one realizes that there is a very clear pattern. On days one, two, and three, God made things, places. And on days four, five, and six, God made things to go in those places. So everything has a place and everything is in its place. To the problem of chaos, of fearful disorder, God has instituted a carefully chosen, deliberately wrought, delicate balance of order. And into this painstakingly created, ordered world where God has repeatedly identified what God made as good, God plunks humankind in the image of God and gives us both dominion and a blessing. One of the beauties of living our, our faith in Christ by struggling with Scripture is the infinite richness we may encounter in the biblical text. Well, I tend to have a particular focus on what it means to be made in the image of God. I, I tend to preach it as though being made in the image of God means that we are made with the capacity for love, to share it and to receive it. And by the way, I can back that up. It's biblical. 
The priestly altar, on the other hand, would have had a different understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. For the priestly author, they would have been certainly thinking about the reality that in the ancient world, the practice of a monarch would be to place a, a statue, a monument, or a marker of some sort in the outlying areas of what would be generally considered his rule as a reminder to people who might not see their sovereign ever, if at all, that that was who was in charge. The monument stands to remind people of who is in charge of the realm. When God creates humans in God's image and places them in the midst of God's carefully ordered creation, it is as a marker that dominion that God gives us to exercise is to be a monument to the God in whose image we are made. God's purpose for humankind is that we should live as markers of God's rule and God's order in the world. Now, any student of, of history knows that the ancient world had multiple creation narratives. Anyone who digs around in the ancient Near Eastern creation myths will quickly find stories very similar to what we encounter in our own Bible. But what one will notice is the difference, though, is in the other stories where the gods whose creation activities are recounted, in many cases, what happens after that is that the next move is to make the people slaves and to do their bidding in the world. But not so with the story of God and us. God creates the world good and then places the humans in it to be God's agents of divine good order. And for anyone struggling with meaning in a foreign land, enslaved and marginalized, this is good meaning. And perhaps if one is struggling for meaning in a common land, unchallenged and bored, worried over the state of things, this is good meaning. As the psalmist asks, who are we, O Lord, that thou art mindful of us? We are God's creation. We are God's handiwork. We are God's marker of God's rule and creation. To put a fine point on it, we are given dominion that we might work God's purposes. In that sense, God has drafted us to continue the work of caring for creation. Now, you and I aren't called to maintain the rigid order of the priestly narrative. Their rituals, their order, provided the ethical framework in which they lived, and we don't live in the same framework. Our world is different. Our time is different. We know some different things. Therefore, our task is different. But this we have in common. The word of God stands to provide us with meaning and purpose. To be in God's image is to have a task of bearing the good news that a creative God has blessed us with dignity and intellect and value and placed us as God's monument. 
And that's the same whether we are in the 6th century BCE weeping for Zion by the waters of Babylon or whether we are trying to make sense of the very real complexities of life in the modern era where we consider chaos and disorder very differently perhaps from how the ancients did. But the good news remains the same. There's a word that God has a way in the world that is marked by good order, where creation is valued. Indeed, where creation is called good, have something to say to ecological justice? Well, I believe so. We're not monoliths, by the way, as Christians. One text doesn't say it all to us. We're free, indeed, we're expected to go beyond the boundaries of the text as we encounter them on Sunday morning worship to see what the whole story is of what God has done and what is God is even yet still doing. And I understand that a, a creation theology that prizes above all else created order may not say very much to us in all the moments of our lives. But there's more to this text. To the fear that chaos may reign, that creation may unravel, we know that God brings order out of chaos. To the fear that there is no meaning to what we are doing, we remember that God gave us purpose. Dominion was the word. Not to do whatever we please, but to work as God's agents in creation. You know, there's a deeply misguided notion that what the Bible means by dominion is that we can do whatever we want to with creation. Where does that fit into God's painstakingly crafted order? It simply does not. Let's come around, come back around to the fears and loss of hope and those for those ancient unintentional immigrants to Babylon. Afraid, abandoned, worried their God was done with them, the priests penned these verses in God's name to say, no, wait, there is more. Don't despair. Don't ever give up hope. The God who created order in the chaos has made a place for you in that order and given you a calling be God's agents in the world to carry the good news of God's power and God's goodness forward. God has a way for creation. That much is clear in this text. We may have to venture a bit further afield in the Bible to discern what the totality of God's way in the world is. And we should. No, we must. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are told what God's way is for the world. It is a way marked by God's justice. It is the culmination of all that God has been saying from Genesis 1 through Job and the psalmists and the prophets. It is marking out a way of goodness generosity, faithfulness. It is a way that treats our neighbors with 
the same consideration we desire for ourselves and perhaps even treats our neighbors with more consideration than we expect for ourselves because it is a way that expects us not simply to receive God's creation as a gift, but to love creation the way that God does. Orienting ourselves in that way won't answer all the questions we can come up with, not by any reasonable measure. And I imagine the lingering effects of human irresponsibility will continue to leave us with pressing questions. And perhaps they will even sound like those priests in Babylon thought their people asked what they thought they were asking. Do I still matter to God? Is God still in charge? What can we do about this mess we've made? We worship a God who fixes messes. But we also worship a God who invites us to participate in the fixing. That's why one of my favorite bits of well-worn rabbinical wisdom is the notion that God intentionally left creation unfinished. Not because God needs more work to do, but because God wants us to experience the joy that God feels in creation. God wants us to be co-creators of the world in which we are living. That is a whole lot of investment in us. That's a whole lot of hope placed in us. That's a ridiculous amount of trust placed in us. But that's how God set it up. That's the way God wants it to operate. So we are left with the simple task of being God's image, God's marker, God's monument to those who might see God rarely, if at all. We are left to be monuments of the good news. And it is very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
witness to what the church holds as its universal statement of faith. So together, let us say what it is that the church believes. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made human, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. We offer our lives in service, with our time, our talents, the fruit of our labors and the fulfillment of our pledges. May it be with joyful and generous hearts that we come forward to share our offerings, whether that's in the plates up front, in the narthex, or online, as we remember the gifts that we have been given and our responsibility as stewards of God's good earth.
loving God, we give these offerings in gratitude, rejoicing in the abundance of your gifts to us. May they be used for the furthering of your work in the world around us. In Christ's name, amen. Let us continue in prayer as we hold in this space what sits upon our hearts. Loving and all-merciful God, you are the one we know in the rushing of the wind and the stillness of the night. You are the one we feel in the presence of the blossoming tree and in the ever-changing waters of the river. We come in prayer yearning to know you more fully, but our lives are pulled in so many directions that we sometimes forget to stop and breathe and know you walk with us. It is you who has opened to us the wonders of creation and placed yourself among us as the heartbeat of our daily lives. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Loving God, we pray today for peace. Peace for those who are at war, for those who cannot keep their children safe, for those who live their lives in fear. Fear on the streets where they live and fear in their own homes. For those tormented by the very thought of living another day. May we see them, merciful God, as you already do. May we know your peace in these moments of prayer and these vessels filled to overflowing that your peace might spill from us like the cascading waters of your good earth. We pray today for strength, for those who wake in the morning not knowing in what direction to turn, for those who crave what harms them, for those in pain, physical and mental and spiritual pain, for those who have experienced loss that has left them empty. For those who are not free to share their true identity, who they know they truly are. May we hold them as you already do. May we know the strength that comes from you that we might be their rock. That your strength might steady us like the majestic mountains of your good earth. And we pray today for clarity. For those who are in positions of power in our city, our nation, in every nation. Those who make decisions that ripple down to those living in poverty those who are unaware of the part they play in systemic racism, all of us who cannot see how we are harming this planet with our waste and our consumption. May we all be held in the light of your unquenchable love. May we know the clarity that comes when we set our hearts and minds at rest in you, that your light might lift us like the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us even now. 
Hear our prayers today, and may they guide us to an ever-closer vision of your peace, made known to us in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. of God in the world. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Mm -hmm.